What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How can we live the truth of this out in our everyday lives? In this series, you will be challenged to not just claim Christianity, but to operate in the power of Christ's name. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Hey, so we're in the book of Acts. We're in the third, uh, third week of this series. The first two weeks, we covered Jesus' ascension into heaven. We covered Pentecost. We covered the Holy Spirit filling the disciples and all those who were there. And we are now in Acts chapter 3. Grab a Bible, open it up, get your smartphone out. Let's jump into it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. We're going to be reading one of the, I believe it's the second sermon of Peter so far. And Peter is going to be uh, arguably the greatest evangelist that's ever lived. And here we're catching one of his very first sermons in the church ever. And so uh, Acts 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 15 is where we're going to be at. And today we're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets. And we're going to get to a point, hopefully by the end of the sermon today, where we're looking at scripture, Old and New Testament, and saying it is the almighty, absolute, uh, non-negotiable truth of God Almighty. So that's where we want to get, but we need to start somewhere. So we're going to start in Acts 3, verse 15. Peter opens up. You killed the author of life. Okay, can I just stop there for a second? There's no need to read further. Peter's preaching, kind of like I am, not in a building, but was probably out in the town square. And he opened his sermon with, you killed the author of life. Now, I've said some offensive things from the stage, possibly just a few minutes ago. But I have never accused anyone in here of killing the author of life. This is how he opens his sermon. Uh, But God raised him from the dead. We were all witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. And you guys can plainly see it. So what he's talking about is verses 1 through 14. It's about the uh, lame beggar who was out there who's who cried out to be healed, Peter heals him, right? And what he's wanting to address people's attention to is not that he healed him, but that it is God Almighty, the same God who you all just murdered, uh, who healed him. Uh, And so that's the reference, verse 17. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. Peter, you aren't helping yourself out here. I just called you all murderers, and now I've said you're ignorant as well, like on top of it. I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send you Jesus the Christ who's been appointed for you. So I've called you wicked sinners. I've called you ignorant. I've called you murderers. And he's only two or three sentences into his sermon. I would think Peter would not be welcomed in most churches here in America. Verse 21, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago, long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. 
You must listen to everything he tells you, and anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Verse 24. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days we're in. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people of the earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that this morning that your Holy Spirit, that it would be here, Lord, as I felt in first service, that you would just reach and touch the hearts and minds of your sons and daughters, and that we would have a clear understanding of what Peter was preaching and its relevance to us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are with this subject of morals, right? Peter's talking to this group. He's beginning to preach. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we come to this subject of morals. Now, let me ask you something. Who likes morals? That lady does. There's like a smattering of you. I appreciate the honesty in Life Point Church. Like 99% of my congregation's like, no thanks. I don't need them. You guys are just, who doesn't like morals? There we go. No, you just don't raise your hand for anything. Who likes coffee? Oh, so you raise your hand for coffee. Okay. Sermon's done. I can't preach in a church like this. Come on. So here's the thing with morals. Morals are both unavoidable, obviously, you can avoid them, and they're impossible. And how is that the case? Morals are both unavoidable and impossible. They're unavoidable by the fact that if you say there is no absolute truth, if you say there is no God, if you say there is no finality to what we can know, everything is relative, well, then morals are impossible. I can't be held to anything. You can't be held to anything. And most importantly, you can't hold me to anything. Why? Because I'm acting in according to what is good for me. Does that make sense? Now, this, this gets a little philosophical today, but I was told for a service I did a good job of making it understandable. But we need to understand this concept that if, there, if everything is relative, even in my understanding of God, in my understanding of how I get to heaven, if all of it is relative, then it means that there is nothing you can hold me to because it's always going to be relative to my experiences and my interpretations. Now, Peter's saying something much different here. Peter's like, hey, murderers, you killed the author of life. But don't worry, you did it because you were ignorant, and you were ignorant because you're wicked sinners. That's what Peter said, not me, Peter. Don't, don't kill the messenger. You were wicked sinners who were ignorant, and you killed the author of life. This is truth. It is non-negotiable. I don't care what you think. I don't care if you say I wasn't there. I don't care if you were like, I voted for him. I'm not the one who put him on the cross. You did it. There is this non-negotiable truth that is impossible if we understand morals, if we understand truth in any way to be something completely subjective. Now, I'm going to walk us through it here. So if we say, I can't believe in a final truth, I can't believe in a truth that's been imposed on me by somebody else, then what we're saying is there is no absolute truth. And we take examples, like look at what Hitler did. Hitler believed in an absolute truth and killed millions in his wake to get there. Uh, the Catholic Church in the Inquisition killed thousands in response to what they believed was truth. And we look around at the American church, which has segregated, split, divided itself, kicked people out, um, made people feel uh, less than, pushed away because their sins were different than the ones we allow to come to church. And we've done it in the name of truth. 
Now, what I want to point out this morning and what's going to be so important for you to walk out of here today is a clear understanding of what an absolute truth is, of who an absolute truth is, and how can I tell the difference between heresy that looks really close to the truth and truth itself. Does that sound good? Would you say in an election year that we want our candidates to have morals? Okay. Sometimes what we want, sometimes the candidate we get is the one we deserve, not the one we need. Okay, little Batman quote for you there. As soon as you get rid of the idea of truth, you don't have any reason to be disgusted, right? About what other people are doing because it's all relative. So as soon as you get rid of that idea, it becomes impossible to have it, but it becomes unavoidable because your actions are affecting me. Isn't that interesting? I believe in a relativistic society. I believe that even the Bible is subjective to my understanding and my interpretation of it. I don't choose to interpret it that way. I want to interpret it this way because it makes my life easier. Well, what happens is now morals become unavoidable because I'm interpreting it like this. I get to drive on the streets at 75 miles an hour, and I want you to get out of the way because my life is more important than you. Because I have interpreted the speed limit to mean a suggested limit. And there is a maximum. So I should be going at least 35 miles an hour. Isn't that how you interpret the speed limit? That's why California is terrible. If you go to California, it says speed maximum. And I'm like, ah, you got me, California. I mean, you didn't actually get me. I'm still going to speed. But you, logically, I can't argue with that. You see, it becomes unavoidable because my interpretation of morals impinges on your life. It impinges on your safety, on your happiness. And all of a sudden, we get really upset at these morals we don't really believe in. We just want everyone to have the same one. We want this idea of world peace, right? How long? I know that since you've been alive, I know it was big back in the 80s and 90s, but remember world peace? We sang about it, like all of our musicians got together and they collaborated on a song about it. We all want world peace. Friends, I can't get my three-month-old dog and seven-year-old son to do what I need them to do. I spent yesterday yelling and saying no more times than I can count right? Don't tear that up. Don't hit that. Don't kick that. Stop eating that. And that was my son. And then I looked at my dog and I was like, you all of the same things. It's, it drives me nuts. And then, but the thing is, I have these imposed moral beliefs on them. I believe there should be an understanding that you do not hit your sisters, that you do not take things that are not yours, that you do not backtalk your mother. These are all things I have a moral understanding of. These are absolute truths in my home. Right? And then I look at the dog, and no matter how many times you tell it no, it does not listen. But then I look at my son, and I'm like, uh-oh, it's the same thing. Fortunately, Amazon, for $28.99, you can get a shot collar. It's in the mail. It said it was going to be here today. Whether it's for my son or my dog, I can't wait to try it out. It's, uh, you know, I don't even have to say no anymore. I just have to press the little button. you laugh. And it's funny if it wasn't true. <laughs> the idea of right and wrong becomes unavoidable but impossible in a modern relativistic world where nothing's absolute. So how is Christians in a world where everything is relative, especially truth, especially morals, how is it we can stand on an absolute truth and not be these judgmental, cynical, creeps, which is kind of what we've seen Christianity do in the last uh, five or so, six decades here in America. 
It becomes this place where we get called self-righteous. And the problem is we get called self-righteous because we've been self-righteous. You know, there's something about truth of Scripture impacting your life that when you see somebody who has allowed the heart of the Father to transform them, they don't feel judgmental, do they? You don't feel like when you go around them that they're going to browbeat you, that they're going to look at everything you're doing wrong. Anybody have a family member like that? Anybody have a mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncle, who just, you know you've been messing up? They're the person you go to when you mess up. You don't go to the other people, but you go to them. And it's not that they accept what you're doing. It's just that you know they accept you. You know that feeling? That's truth. That's how our God is. He may not always accept what you're doing, but if you have a relationship with him, he accepts you always. And he loves you always. And he will not leave you ever. That is truth. But you can't know that truth if you have built God to suit your needs. So there's this... uh, Guy Leonard Bernstein, back in 1954, did a TV program where he's teaching kids how to play music, right? And in it, he talks about Beethoven's fifth. And he says, when Beethoven's fifth is playing, you get a sense that something is right in this world. Something checks throughout. Something follows its own laws consistently. It's something we can trust, and it's something that won't let us down. Have you ever seen something at the height of its ability, as someone at the greatest level of talent? That's what he's saying. He's saying there's just something, right? There's something beyond the natural. It's beautiful. It's it's almost perfect. How is that possible if there's nothing outside of what we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands? How is that, that there's something there that just seems right? Why would you sense it's there even though you deny it? You see, the world senses that we are more than just flesh and bone, but it denies it because the implications that you are more than just flesh and bones is that you are required to do more and there is more responsibility on your life. And the last one, you ready? You're accountable in this life. Right? Amen. I mean, that's what it is. It's not that we don't sense it's there. It's not that we haven't had moments that are much bigger than ourselves, that we haven't had coincidences that we're like, what? How in the world did that happen? It's that we don't want to be accountable to what it could possibly mean. And that's why Peter's preaching. He's saying, guess what, guys? You killed the author of life, and I'm holding you accountable. But here's the beauty of the author of life. You fulfilled his plan. He allowed it to happen. It was part of all that he has been working out. And you know how long he's been working it out? Go all the way back to the Old Testament. Go back to Moses. Go back to Abraham. He's been working it out since the beginning of time. So in case you think this Jesus is just some random crackpot who's come in with his own ideas, let's take a look at him. This is what Peter's saying. He's like, let's look at his life. There is nothing he is going to say that is not consistent 100% with the Old Testament prophets right down to his very existence, fulfilling every single prophecy that was said about him. Nothing. He is absolute. He is final. He is God Almighty. 
And this is where Peter's going with it. First, he says in verse 17 and 18, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. So did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets. And he says this. He does not say that they brought us words about God. What does he say? They brought us words of God. See, that's a difference. There's a huge difference there. I can bring you words about somebody. I can bring words about my experiences growing up watching Michael Jordan, arguably the best basketball player to ever play. Don't tell me about Will Chamberlain. And enjoy and tell you all about him. Or I could actually bring you words of him. I spoke with him. Here's the transcript. This is actually what he said. This is his heart. This is his mind. Which is better? My interpretations of what I saw from a distance about him or the actual words of the man himself? You see, what Peter is saying is the Old Testament is not men who were sitting there contemplating. They thought long and hard about it. They studied and they wrote words about God. They wrote words of God, inspired by God, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, look at Isaiah, look at Moses, look at the scriptures. These are not words about God. These are words of God. If Isaiah said it, then God said it. This isn't just Isaiah's experiences and interpretations of God. What you have on the page and what you see is what God has said through the book of Acts in uh, chapter 4, verse 25. We'll, We'll be there next week. But it says this, the Lord God, who by the mouth of David did say by the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Psalm 2. You see, every single time it's David said this, but he said it because of what the Holy Spirit was doing through him. Now, this should in you, a a natural, rational, logical being, should say anybody can say that they're speaking on behalf of God. In fact, that's exactly what we have going on in America today. God told me I was supposed to do it. What happens when you get in trouble? Satan told you to do it, right? But if you did something good, then God told me to do it. So how do I tell the difference between the heresy the, the person, man or woman, who is hearing from God, has a vision from God, has been told when the world is going to end, has been told about a new book that's never been seen before or rules that have never been seen before, and now we should follow them. What do you do with this? How, how do you do with it? How, is they any, how are they any different than David and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi? How are they different than the prophets of old? It's a great question. Does anybody have the answer? Because I've been studying all week. I have no idea. I'm just kidding. That would be really, really lame of me. We're going to get to that. What's clear here is the Bible teaches that all the New Testament Christians believed that the Holy Spirit so overpowered and overwhelmed and influenced everyone who wrote the scriptures that what the scriptures say is what God says. So what you have here is a completely and thorough, true book, not of what men's thoughts are, but of God's thoughts, of God's design given to us. If you can't see the Bible that way, if you look at the Old and the New Testament and you pick and choose the scriptures you will believe and the ones you won't believe, then you are creating for yourself an idol, not uh, serving God Almighty. Because the definition of an idol, the very definition of an idol in the Old Testament is to be a, uh, a part of your workmanship, craftsmanship. It is something you shape in your image. It is something that you shape for your comfort, right? So if I, if I want... Uh, wealth or prosperity, I'll shape an idol in that image. If I want rain for crops, I'll shape an idol in that image. If I want love, I'll shape an idol in that image. If you take church, I'm saying this earlier than I did first service. First service, I sent it to the end, but I want to be able to say it like two or three times because 
This is one of the most important things I'll say here as far as truth and absolute truth. If you take church and church is comfortable for you and you look for a church where you can go and be God help you comfortable, then church is for you an idol. You're like, church? Well, you mean God or that? No, church is an idol. This gathering is an idol because we look for it as a place to be comfortable. I get asked all the time, how do you have membership to LifePoint? What do I say? When you begin to serve, you become a member. I don't care if your service is in the parking lot or if you're holding kids or you're spilling coffee. Serve. Get involved. Take ownership of it. Be uncomfortable. Have to be here for two hours instead of one. Wake up early. Go to a service you don't normally go to. Take a class that will benefit your life and your marriage. Become uncomfortable. Because when you serve God, you don't shape him to you. You let him shape you to him. That's what serving the Lord looks like. All right. The Holy Spirit is here today. Now, we'll really know if the Holy Spirit's here if third service claps. Third service neither laughs nor claps at any of my jokes. I'm just assuming by the time I get there, I'm not funny anymore. But we'll see. We'll see. So this is what God says. If Scripture was just some ideas of people about God, then the Scriptures themselves would be worth nothing. But if they're actually the words of God, then we can take them as absolute because God is absolute. He would have to be, otherwise he's not God. He's just a God among gods, in which case, that's nothing. That's not impressive. But if he is God Almighty, if he is King of kings, Lord of lords, then I can take the Bible as absolute truth. So here's one of the most common objections to this, right? I don't want to impose my ideas on anyone else. You ever hear that? You ever say that? I don't want to be that Christian who's like thumping people over the head with the Bible and you got to follow, you got to go to church, you got you to stop sinning, you got to start, you know, stop watching those terrible shows. I don't want to be that person, Game of Thrones. But what we look and say is, see how many people laughed? They all got convicted by the Holy Spirit right there. They know, they know. Goodness, that show is wrecked. So we sit and we don't want to impose any of our views on people. So there's this mother uh, back in the late 90s who wrote this article, um, and then it holds so true today, I have to point this out, this is incredible. So she says this about these books that teach parents how to, how to parent their kids. She says, I'm a parent, I'm a mother, and certainly want to teach my children about values, but I don't like all these books. They force you to have to tell your kids what's right and wrong and impose a view on them. I want to just give my children stories and let them come up with the views and values of the story themselves. Now, this is brilliant. Okay, uh, I resist the idea that the best way to help a young person develop values is to determine what the virtues are that must be taught and then illustrate them. Instead, rather, let them learn the same way we learn, which is by reading and making a choice based on the great story. Okay, in theory, it sounds really nice, right? That somehow all of us are just so good at heart that we will take a story, read it, and then think of our fellow man or woman ahead of ourselves and go and love them well because of it. Amen? Wouldn't that just be fantastic? If that would happen, we wouldn't need to sing songs about world peace, and I wouldn't have to buy a shock collar. Like, we, it would already be happening. So what do you do when you take this lady's advice? She gives her son a book that has uh, the, theme, the main themes of it are love, compassion, sharing, and kindness. He reads the book. An hour later, he's in on top of his sister just beating her. And he, she comes in, pulls him off, and says, how dare you? What are you doing? He says, I'm doing exactly what the book said. The book didn't say any of that. It was about this, this, and this. Well, aren't you now imposing your views of that book on your son? Oh, right? 
See how quickly truth, imposed truth comes? Friends, you are allowing a truth to be imposed on you every single day. And you are imposing truth on the people around you every single day. The question is, how are you doing it? Are you doing it how Christ called you to do it? Or are you doing it how man has told you to do it? Even the church. For a long time, the church felt that we will get people to love Christ if we just shame them enough, if we rebuke them enough, if we cast them away to their sin, then they'll come crawling back to the love of God. But I don't see that. I don't ever see Christ do that, do you? I don't see the disciples do that. Even in love, we see Paul with his letters to the church saying, stop allowing adultery. Stop allowing fathers to sleep with their daughters. Like he's sitting there calling out sin to the church and saying, love them, but for heaven's sake, stop allowing these things to happen. But he never says to not love them. That's what I see so little of in our church is a lack of love, genuine love for the person. How many of us have opened our homes to those less fortunate, to those who were telling to get their life on track? Come and live with me. I'll make my life uncomfortable so your life can get back on track. See, that's the church. That's absolute truth. It's in Mark 12. We see where uh, the Pharisees are uh, basically telling Christ where to go. And Christ looks at him and says, you know what your problem is? You know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's a burn. These are the Pharisees. They pride themselves on one thing, knowing the scripture and correlating to that, knowing the power of God. And Christ came at the one thing they thought they knew, and he said, you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. So how is it that Christ was able to take upon himself the abuse the persecution, the misunderstanding, the loneliness, the rejection of an entire world. Well, he was God. Of course he could do it. No, while he was here, he was fully man as well. How did he do it? Tells us again and again, it tells us. It says, Christ said, it is written. Christ said, it is written. Christ said, it is written. What is he quoting? Is he quoting himself, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, of course not. Those books haven't been written yet. He's quoting the prophets. He's quoting his father's words. Do you see that? He's not quoting words about his father. This is what's so cool. I hope this gets you today. He's actually quoting his father's words because they were the words of God, not the words about God. And so when the Pharisees come out in Mark 12, he says, you, you know what your problem is? You don't know the Bible. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then Peter comes to murder the guard who's going to take Jesus at his betrayal, right? And Jesus stops him and says, Peter, stop. Don't you know that I could call my father and he would send down 12 legions of angels right now? Peter, don't you know? Haven't you read? Isn't there something in you that goes, this must be allowed to happen? Because if that's God, then I know the power of God. You catching on here? 
What's he continue to do? Luke 23, he looks down and he sees the women wailing and crying for him. What does he say? Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. There will come a time in which those who are suckling will go running out and say to the hills, fall on us, and they will say to the mountains, cover us. There is going to come a time when the women who are breastfeeding are going to cry out for death because the time and the times of the days will be so bad. Christ says, don't well for me. Why did he say that? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. Paul says, when we turn away from God, I'll hear this. When you turn away from God, he doesn't turn away from you. You know that, right? He constantly is there. He is constantly waiting. He is constantly seeking and drawing us back to him. He says that him that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And yet Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know that even in that moment, even in that anguish, those weren't his words? Look it up, Psalm 22. My God, my God, his entire life, his entire being is quoting and doing the will of his father. Jesus' life was not about himself. It was not about what he wanted. We see that, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but yours be done. He gets through this life. He stays on track with absolute truth because he knows the scriptures. And he knows the men in the scriptures are not men who wrote about a God they had heard of, but they were writing of the God who was speaking through them. That is how I can look at scripture. That is how I can allow that to be what, uh, what influences my life. And if I see somebody living in a way that's contrary to that, they can tell me all day long they're a Christian and they can show me all the church services and small groups they do. But if you have not love in your heart, it's worthless. And I'll call you out on it. Because I love you. Because I want to see the influence that God has given you continue to expand. Just as I would hope you would do for me. Just as I hope you would do for me. So he dealt with betrayal with Scripture. He dealt with pain with Scripture. He dealt with temptation with Scripture. And he dealt with controversy with Scripture. How did he know God's will? (laughs) Well, he knew the Scripture. He knew the heart of his father. You know, growing up, it was easy to obey my father because I knew the heart of my father. I've shared many times on the relationship I have with my dad. And because of that relationship, I knew his heart. I knew what he wanted of me. He didn't have to constantly tell me. I knew my father's heart. And what's even more is I wanted to please my father's heart. Most sons do. But the difficult thing with most sons is they don't know the heart of their father. And so they're searching for it. They're searching for acceptance from the world. They're searching for acceptance from a woman. They're searching for acceptance from fame or from work. And they're searching for that heart. I'm telling you today, men or women in this room, the heart of your father is right here. This is what he's preaching in Acts. This is what Peter is preaching in Acts, the heart of the father. Why did thousands come to the Lord that day? Because they were shamed into it? Heavens no. Because for the first time in their life, they got to hear the heart of the father, an absolute, undeniable truth. I'm close with this. When you feel you're worthless, if you have a church that, comf- that forms around you and is an idol, then you won't be able to hear the God tell you you're not. 
When you feel that you uh, are hopeless, you won't be able to hear God tell you you're not. First John 3 says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Did you hear that? Listen, if you're in here this morning and you came in here feeling hopeless or worthless, 1 John 3 says, whenever your heart condemns you, if you're feeling that way, then your heart is condemning you. It's saying you're worth nothing. Way to go. You messed up again. You're a slob. You'll never get it right. And what John is saying is that when your heart condemns you, God does not. But if you have a God that you have built around your own structures, then he can't tell you that because you won't hear that from him. And so what Peter's saying, look in verse 24, all the prophets, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people of the earth will be blessed. He's saying Moses talked about a final prophet, didn't he? Moses, you know how far back we got to go to get from Jesus to Moses? Moses talked about a final prophet. Christians, why do we read the Old Testament? We say, look at all the sacrifices. Look at all the clean laws. What's all that about? I have to wear certain clothes. I have to go to worship a certain way. I can't eat certain foods. I have to wash in the labor. The, the labor. I have to bring the showbread. I have to light the candles. What is all of this stuff? What it all is is this. No matter how good you are or how hard you try, you are not fit to be in the presence of God. I am not fit to be in the presence of God. And what the Old Testament was showing us was showing us that, that we needed something greater. We needed a sacrifice greater. You see, the Old Testament isn't about Abraham. It's not about the law. It's not about sacrifices and kosher foods. It's all about Jesus. That one day one will come. One will come who will satisfy that, who will bring us into relationship both justice and mercy, as I talked about last week. It's all about him. And if you don't understand the Old Testament, and if you aren't acquainted with it, you won't understand Jesus. And you'll take his words and his love and his kindness, and you'll abuse it, and you'll pick it apart for the pieces that make sense to you. But if you understand where he's coming from, and you understand that from the beginning you're not fit to be in the presence of an almighty God, then you will understand Jesus, and you will love Jesus. Because you will get that he satisfied all of that. That I get to be in the presence that right now, in this place, in this room, God's Holy Spirit is here. In this room. Because of what Jesus did. Because of his sacrifice. And lastly, in verse 26, it says that God raised him up. It says, when God raised him up, his servant Jesus, he sent him first to, you, first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now, how could he say that? When Jesus was raised up, not everybody saw Jesus, right? He showed himself to a few hundred people and then ascended into heaven. So how could he say that? How could he say that you all get to see him because he's been raised up? Wherever the gospel is preached, Jesus is there. Wherever you share your testimony with somebody, Jesus is there. When you go and selflessly help a neighbor or a friend without asking for anything in return, Jesus is there. People see the Christ every time his sons and daughters go out and reach the world for him with no other motive other than to love people as Christ has commanded us to love people.
they will see Christ. So as we invite the ushers forward, we, we close service here with communion at, uh, at LifePoint. And communion for us isn't just doctrinal, it's not just tradition. It's if you have a relationship with this Jesus. If like Peter, you have looked at yourself and said, I am an ignorant, wicked murderer, and I need the love and the righteousness of an almighty God to save me, then take the two cups, they're stacked on top of each other, the bread and the juice, and hang on to them and we'll partake together. If you haven't gotten to that point, if it's just not you yet, then let the bread and the cup pass today. It's not about anything. There's no power specifically in that. The power comes in the relationship you have with Christ. But if that's not you, just let it pass today. If you want that to be you, listen. If you've never given your life to Christ, but today you're saying, I want what you're talking about, Pastor. I want that life. I want that relationship. I want that kind of assurance. And we have good news for you today. Is it can be yours. Amen? It can be yours. It doesn't require you get your life together. It doesn't require you go to a class. It doesn't require any schooling. It just requires that you submit your heart and your will before God and that you make a proclamation of faith that you will follow him. And you can do that here today. Back in this corner over here is our prayer room. And we're going to have people in there when we stand up to worship here in a minute. And what I encourage you to do is to get up and you walk over there and you say, I want Jesus in my life. That's just what you tell them. Just say, I want Jesus in my life. And they're going to extend a hand and they're going to pray with you, give you some resources, and make sure you don't walk in this alone. You hear me? There's no greater gift we can give you. I can pay your electric bill. I can feed you. But as the church here in Santan Valley, this is the greatest gift we can offer. Take it. I can't force it upon you. You have to take it. But those doors will be open for you to walk through. That night when Jesus was with his disciples and he knew what the scriptures taught he knew what, where his life was leading him it didn't mean it was easy it didn't mean he didn't wish there was another way the separation from the father whatever that looked like the sin of the world on him all of the hideousness the hate the murder the bitterness envy, jealousy, all of it, stuff he's never known. Could you imagine? Imagine taking a precious baby and putting all of that on them. They've never known hate. He knew it was coming, and so he sat there with these men who were going to be responsible for carrying his message out, who he would place the mantle and the anointing to not just speak the words of his father, but to live out the words of his father. And so in the upper room, he gave him this. He gave us communion, the sacrament of communion, that whenever we would gather together like this, we would remember his sacrifice. And we would remember that this life is more than talking. 
but it's about walking it out. And so he took the bread and he split it up amongst them and when everyone had had a piece, he said, this is my body broken for you. Taste and eat, see that it is good. Thank you, Lord. When they had eaten, he held up a cup. And remember that Old Testament law? He did. He said, no more will you shed the blood of animals. No more will a sacrifice have to be paid for the penalty of sin. I will pay it. I will pay it for the past, for the present, and for the future. So this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Father, I can't help but be humbled every time I come into communion to be reminded, Lord, that I'm not fit to be in your presence and yet you gave everything so I could be. To be reminded, God, that there is an absolute truth. There is an imposed truth in our lives. You came and you imposed it in the form of your son, Jesus Christ. That we would not wander aimlessly through this life. That we would not feel broken. That we would not feel empty. But that we might have meaning greater than ourselves. And that we would find it through serving others and loving you. Father, in this place, for those who your spirit is speaking to you right now. Lord, you get them up, you move them to the prayer room. They would come and they would find new life in you. For anyone else who is here who just wants prayer, wants to be reminded, who maybe today was reminded of who God is in their life, come to the front, come to the altar. We have people there to pray for you as well.